Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels number 22. In the previous episode, we wrapped up our story about the woman at the well uh, with the woman leaving her jar at the well and returning to the Samaritan people, exclaiming, wondering, pondering if this could be the Messiah that even pagan, non-Israel-centric people were waiting for who have been associated with God's story, this aspect of a figure like Jesus being able to peer into her life so clearly and so vividly to get it into the heart of you know what she wants for her life what the things that she wants more of and that how he could fulfill that uh and then he had a conversation with his disciples about what it means to uh, do the will of god and to look out into uh, the world or the fields and see, um, you know, the wheat or the people being ripe for harvest of yeah. the message of the kingdom. Um, and this aspect of there's a timeline that happens be- between someone who is planting seeds, who is sowing things in righteousness, and then another one who's reaping those things. They both work together. Uh, they're not going against one another. One shouldn't feel disappointed if you're a sower rather than a reaper. It's all of promoting the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and that Jesus actually showed what it means to practice radical hospitality with staying with the Samaritans for multiple days. Uh, we had a little bit, little bit of ambiguity on whether his disciples did. Uh, no such thing of the text mentioned that, but many, many more Samaritans Uh, came to believe in faith and faithfulness of the message of the kingdom through Jesus staying there. And they had that firsthand experience. Uh, They didn't have to be relying on the woman at the well's account because they got to experience that Hebrew aspect of yadahing, of uh, truly experiencing uh, this Messiah, and many believe because of Jesus' words. Yeah. Yeah, that was all a big deal. Uh, And this, boy, this week we're going to really switch off of that topic um (laughs) but you know how you know how we've uh tried to say that we're trying to go through the gospels in in a timeline order Mm -hmm. and i mean we are and of course you know we aim for timeline perfection but to be clear we make no claims (laughs) regarding (laughs) timeline perfection uh and in this case uh it's 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 kind of weird, you know, I, when I started this, I got uh, probably a handful of resources that were trying to lay out a timeline order of the Gospels, and I tried to reconcile them and, you know, figure out this and that, and just just come up with what I thought was the best combination of all of those. And so this week, I think, is going to feel a little bit weird, and here's what I mean. We're going to be reading, uh, like, for example, we start in Matthew chapter 13, Whoa. verse 53. But then we're also in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and then we're in John chapter 4, verse 43. And as if that doesn't seem odd enough, you know, the the strange, man, it doesn't seem like these are in the same parts of the gospel at all. Um, 
when you're reading around, these also feel like they're way, way out of place. Um, in Matthew, uh, he, he's been in someone's house. We think maybe it was Peter's. And he's, he's going through some explaining and telling of, of parables. Uh, in Mark, he was on the, we're not sure exactly, but somewhere on like the western or northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we got this, uh, you know, like stories you might remember, the woman with the issue of blood, uh, healing a synagogue leader, uh, Jairus' daughter. Uh, in Luke, uh, it, he had just finished up the, tenta- the temptations and he was preaching around Galilee and everybody was really liking him at that point. And then, of course, in John, we just finished up uh, in Samaria with the woman at the well. So very different places leading to this this story. But we're going with it because the point is we're going to cover all of the text, even if we somehow screw it up and get it in the wrong timeline order. So anyway, there you go. So let's read. Yeah, this is important episode to check your show notes for this PDF uh, so that you can follow along with us. Boy, so you know, that, that's right. Take it take it away, Paul. All right. So uh, I'm just going to read from each of these because they're shorter and we can kind of get through it. Um, Matthew 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Mark 6, 1. He went away from there. John 4, 43. After two days, he departed. For Galilee. And that's that idea of each of them are, are in a very different place, uh, but that we get here. And so now we get to, you know, what's probably the text that we care about today anyway. So Matthew, well, you know what? Actually, I'm going to read from Luke first, because that's actually going to be the main part of what we talk about in this section. And then I'll probably read bits or all of the others just so you can see how they're similar or different. So we're going to go to Luke Chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, and we're going to match this up with Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. So Luke 4, 16 says this, And he came to Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So that sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. He gets to the synagogue, he basically declares himself to be Messiah, and they're like, yeah, you go, dude. (laughs) And just to see, similarly, if we went and look at Mark, it says that he came to his hometown, his disciples followed him. Uh Uh-oh, where'd they come from? 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And Matthew, very similar, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So at this point, things are looking pretty good for Jesus, right? So he goes back home, and I think this is important that we see this. He's continuing his life as a fully Torah-observant Jew. He's honoring the Sabbath. He's joining in with the assembly at the synagogue. He's participating in the teaching. He is being a Jew through and through. Yeah? Yeah, and that rhyme, too. Well, and why wouldn't it? (laughs) I'm a poet. You didn't know it? My feet show it. They're Longfellows. Ah. Ah. All right. So, do you remember, and, and I mentioned this while we were reading, do you remember how the disciples, we, we talked about how they kind of disappear from John's narrative? Mm-hmm. And yet, here you go. Lo and behold, immediately when we get to Mark's story, he has them with him. So, all I can say is, that's interesting. It's fun to notice things like this, keep an eye on them, try to figure out what's going on there. I don't know if we're really going to come up with any sort of, you know, awesome answer or explanation or whatever, but still, they're there, they're back, at least in this story. And now, uh, I thought maybe, Samuel, it might be good to take a minute, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go real deep, but maybe just talk a little bit about synagogue practices, what, what things might have looked like back then. And to be fair, we don't have lots of explicit detail. I think a lot of times some of these things were just taken for granted, but, you know, Sometimes things are just incidental, or maybe there's inferences here and there, stuff like that. So we we can know some stuff. What we know is that somebody was going to read from the Torah. And in fact, it probably wasn't just going to be a single somebody. They were probably going to spread this out among a number of people. And this is important. Well, we'll see this when we get down to it. But okay, so a number of people are going to read from the Torah. And... Now, this gets a little murky. Um, Maybe one of those people, maybe a different person, they may actually, at this point, offer some sort of teaching or commentary on the Torah portion that was read. And and they simply called that the Torah portion, and then somebody uh, expounding on that. And then you would have someone who would also read from the Prophets. And so instead of calling that the Torah portion, they called that the Haftarah portion. And again, you might have either that same person or someone else who is going to offer some sort of teaching or commentary on that Haftarah portion. Now, as far as scripture and teaching, that's kind of the story. Uh, Of course, they were there for a long time. There's many other things going on, the prayers, possibly singing, um, a lot of the stuff they did would, we might call it liturgical, where you'd have one guy repeating a thing that they did every week and other people responding to it kind of stuff. Um, but that, that's not really relevant here. Uh, just trying to give you, just trying to give you a picture of, hey, they're going to meet, they're going to read, they're going to teach. And you may think, gosh, that sounds a little bit like church. And it does, because whatever it is we do has its roots all the way back there. 
But here's what I would like us to notice is that it would have been very common for Jesus right there in his home synagogue to participate in all of these things and seeing how he's at least 30 in his low to mid 30s, whatever. He has been participating in these things a long time. Now, in this day, and okay, the story kind of makes it read like it's a single day. It could have possibly crossed multiple Sabbaths and all that, whatever. But on this day, Jesus teaches. And we actually don't have any of the, the teaching itself recorded. We've just got the little bit that Luke gave us, which isn't really the teaching. But whatever it was that he said, people's jaws were on the floor. There was something different about Jesus on this day. His teaching and his wisdom, they were, they were far beyond what they had experienced from him already before. And now, you might stop for a second and say, uh, Samuel, how old was he when he kind of got left behind in Jerusalem? Wasn't he like 10 or something? 12. And what did he do when he was left behind? Well, he was interacting with the rabbis and the teachers in the synagogue, like actively participating in the discussions about the Torah. Yeah, they were pretty impressed with him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just for reference, that's over in Luke 2, 46 and 47. So here's the thing. At the time, we tried to, you know, sort of put across this idea that, look, he was impressive for a 12-year-old, not impressive you know, like compared to all of humanity. And so he grew up, he's living in this synagogue. And you have to imagine if he was impressive at age 12, he was probably impressive at age 15, 20, 25, 30, right? Just on and on. So these people were probably already accustomed to him being pretty awesome, just generally speaking, right there among his peers in his home synagogue. But this was different. Whatever he was before, now he was crazy good. Hmm? Hmm. So that's kind of a neat picture. They are experiencing something that's outside their normal box. Now, this is going to be important later. Matthew and Mark begin by also mentioning something about his mighty works. And as we continue to read, this question is going to become much more important but you you kind of wonder, so so was he doing these mighty works, you know, right there in and around Nazareth? Was he actually doing them there at the synagogue on this Sabbath day? Or, you know, what did that look like? Now, I'm going to say it doesn't seem likely that he was actually doing stuff on the Sabbath, only because we have stories about that later, and that comes across as pretty controversial. And so you'd think they would have mentioned that. So somehow, either they were hearing the stories from Jerusalem, or maybe he was doing things right there in town, but they, they, they were witnessing some mighty works. So, again, I, I think we also need to just keep in mind this probably isn't in real life a single synagogue visit. This probably spanned a little bit of time. But, whatever, what we have is Luke offering more detail. And, and in his story, 
And this is good. This is going to go back to, so what did it look like there in the synagogue? So if you're trying to get your head in the space, you're trying to get that image in your head, when it says that Jesus stands up to read, well, the obvious meaning is, of course, true. He did stand up and he did read. But this phrase, we actually should take it a little more specifically. It means that he was going to read some of the Torah portion. And I know in English this doesn't come across, but when you stand up to read, that's a that's a very specific phrase for reading some of the Torah. And because the Luke story then continues with him opening up Isaiah, we know that he was the last one to read. And he probably only read the last few lines of whatever the Torah portion was. In fact, he may be rereading something that someone has already read. But he's, he's reading the last few lines just to sort of make the connection between the Torah and the prophet, whatever the reading was this day. And I don't know. I just think this is awesome. We're, we're going to take a moment. Just imagine you've got the word who has been made flesh. And he's reading out loud the word that has been made human language in the Torah. Isn't that awesome? That's some Godception yeah, going on. Yeah, I would, oh, I would just love to have been there. But he, he reads from the Torah that last little bit, and then he reads a hafter portion, and then it says that he sat down. And this language is also filled with meaning that we, you know, probably wouldn't normally know. But when you sit down, that means you are about to teach. And notice how he says it. Uh, he gave, the, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were fixed on him because he sat down. He was ready to teach and they were ready to listen. So, what he does, either, well, and I guess we don't know, his teaching could have been brief, you know, kind of the way Luke's telling the story, or it could have been really long. All we know is we only get probably his little intro there. Um, uh, and by the way, sorry, this just popped in my head. Samuel, you remember when they discovered the, uh, what the heck, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the things that they found was a pretty complete Isaiah scroll. That thing was seven meters long. That's 21 feet for all of you non-metric people. Yeah, that's long. Yeah. Right? And just to be clear, he's reading from Isaiah 61, which is, you know, pretty close to the end. (laughs) (laughs) So now we don't know. I mean, the scroll could have been, you know, somewhere in the middle or who knows, whatever. But can you imagine the awkward silence if it was at the beginning and he's like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, trying to get to the spot? (laughs) I feel like this is one of those contextual moments that shows that God has some semblance of a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just just, like Jesus, just like, hold on a minute. Just just give me a moment. Almost there. Plenty (laughs) of time. Stick with me. Almost there. Yeah. It's funny to picture it. It really is. But anyway, he's reading from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And traditionally, 
Uh, okay, well, let me say it this way. First, I want to back off and I want to be real general. This text is understood to be this, this character, this servant of Yahweh who is speaking. And he's describing creation as it should be. Kind of like what Eden should have been. What the land of Israel was to become, but never, never really did. And, and what we know the kingdom will be. So that's important. So this little bit comes from a section from there, and it's the servant of Yahweh. Now, just from a practical perspective, or like the sort of the plain meaning of the text, the servant of Yahweh is supposed to be Israel, the nation. But even before Jesus was around, this was long understood to also be the Messiah. And so, when he says this at the synagogue, and he says it's fulfilled in your hearing, and that, that, all of that, the crux of his teaching was very simply this. I am King Messiah, and I'm bringing the kingdom. Now, uh, this King Messiah thing, well, let's see. I don't want to jump ahead to that. Let's do this. So, he's saying that he's King Messiah, which, okay, it's kind of interesting he was trying to keep quiet when he was in and around Jerusalem. He just blurted it out when he gets to Samaria. And here, he makes a pretty strong, undeniable reference right here in his hometown. But they're in kind of a rural place, so maybe he feels a little safer. But the part about bringing the kingdom, that is really, that, that's what's contained in that text. Like, for example, we know that the Spirit was on him since his baptism with John. We know that like John, he's proclaiming the good news, the gospel, the, the, the news of the kingdom. It's, it's at hand. And for all of those who are in some sort of subjugation to an enemy, whether that would be Rome or, or maybe, you know, something like sin, death, he's offering salve for those who are crushed in spirit. And he's proclaiming liberty to captives, uh, those in exile, and uh, maybe maybe this is an important little side note. When we talk about liberty to the captives, uh, this is alluding back to the year of Jubilee. You remember how often they had that, Samuel? So like once every 30 years? 50, yeah. 50, that's yeah. the ballpark. Yeah, they do uh, seven, seven sevens. Right, seven years. Seven years was a Sabbath year, and then they did seven of those, which was forty-nine, and then they had a jubilee year. Right, mm-hmm. and that all points to the final redemption. So this program, proclaiming liberty to the captives points to the jubilee, points to final redemption. He's healing the blind, both literally and figuratively, and he's announcing that that God has been faithful or is faithful. The final redemption will actually be secured, and and you know the the thing for us that's probably important to remember is it's going to be accompanied by a day of vengeance. So you've got the final redemption; it's secured, but it's accompanied by a day of vengeance for the wicked and the unrepentant. So in this little bit from Isaiah, he is he's bringing all of these things into the conversation and saying. This is all being fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the guy. I'm bringing all of this stuff. 
And remember, at this point, everybody's happy about it, right? All of their little descriptions are very positive. They marveled. Uh, and, and he's even claiming to be Messiah. They're astonished, marveled at his gracious words, his teaching, his wisdom, his mighty works, all good stuff. You with me? I think so. One of the things that I wanted to hopefully add to this discussion about Jesus' teaching in this story that people may be struggling with is when you have said certain statements like um, the passage in Isaiah that he reads in the Luke version uh, of the story is not his teaching. Um, I know it, it might be hard for people to hear that because probably they originally have been told that him referencing that from the prophets and then proclaiming that he is that Messiah that they've been waiting on is the teaching. But I think that there's multiple different things that are at play here. Some of them are the contextual Jewish uh, cultural things that we don't know from the text, like you said about what sitting down means whenever you are participating in uh, a Sabbath um, festival in the synagogue uh, when you're reading the word. And then also, I think it's important to go back to the Matthew and the Mark version too, because um, in both the Matthew and the Mark version, it says coming to his hometown, he taught them. And in the Mark and Mark version, um, verse 2, Mark 6, 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And so, uh, to me, like whenever you read through the Luke version for the first time and I I heard the cross reference, I'm like, it doesn't sound like he taught at all. Like, And then to, to think about the people's reactions and how marveled they were, if you don't have those extra things at play, it feels kind of anticlimactic to think like, it didn't seem like Jesus said anything at all, and they're just like losing their minds. So <laughs> I think it's important to, to know that if if it's if the story's not adding up in your head like that, they're more than likely there's something deeper going on, and hopefully all those things that Paul said can help enlighten what is happening here, because Jesus definitely s- seems to be saying a whole lot more than what uh, the gospel accounts are saying, which is, you know, it's unfortunate and fortunate at the same time, because I know at the end of, like, John, he, the writer says, like, you know, there's so many different other accounts that Jesus did in his life here on earth that, you know, if you if there was to be a record of them, you couldn't even, you know, add right. up the number of volumes it would take. So right. th- th- right. I think this is just one of those accounts. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. The, uh, he probably gave some awesome teaching. We just don't have any record of it. He read, and then all Luke gives us is that one statement. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, that's an awesome statement, but that's not teaching, right? Mm -hmm. That's not something they would marvel at. (laughs) So yeah, there is. There's a lot more going on here, and, and it's good that we get that picture so that we understand. But what they are giving us are the parts that matter. For whatever mm-hmm. it is, the gospel writer is trying to communicate. So, yeah, we just need to in, go and find out in what In Jewish that is. history, when an individual, either directly or indirectly, is saying that the promise of the Messiah for the nation is being fulfilled, that's a big deal. And the fact that they have a record of that shows that they kept the important parts. Right, right. 
Yeah. So now this, uh, remember how I was, I was kind of highlighting how, hey, everything was going good. Everybody likes him. Everything is great, right? Well, welcome to the next verse. Uh, we're going to look at Luke 4.22, Mark 6.3, and Matthew 13, 55 to 57. And again, I'm going to read each one because there's little little bits you got to catch here. In Luke 4.22, I'm just going to read the last little bit where it says, And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Mark three or Mark six three says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Matthew thirteen fifty five is very similar. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Wow. What happened? That's crazy. So what we've been given through this list of questions, because remember the question started with things like, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? You know, and, and now it's, hey, wait a second. Isn't he just this kid that we already know? So what we see through this is the progression of their thoughts. See, they weren't blind to the goodness that was just, you know, right there before their very eyes. But they were blinded by familiarity prior knowledge. And, I mean, to be fair, it's a difficult thing to remain open to new things, whether that's just ordinary things like knowledge, experience, whatever. It's difficult to remain open to new things and at the same time to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14, right? So I think we just just don't be too quick to judge. We don't know that we would have behaved any differently. But it is weird. Because where are they, Samuel? They're in Nazareth. Nazareth. And do you remember that little word play that we, we talked about with Nazareth with the branch? Yeah, in Isaiah, it talks about there being a branch that comes from the stump of Jesse and that Hebrew word for branch is Netzer. Yeah. And um, the New Testament references for Jesus being coming from Nazareth, uh, the Hebrew word for that is like Netzeret. So right. you have like Netzer and Netzeret. Yeah. And now think about that. Why did they name themselves that? Because they really expected that the Messiah was going to come from where? From Nazareth. Right there. <laughs> yeah. That's, so you would think that this village, out of all villages, would have been very eager to see the Messiah finally come and to be from there. And yet, their thoughts turn. They, they turn. Now, it could be um, 
it wasn't necessarily just their thoughts. I mean, maybe maybe one person brought it up and the next thing you know, we're, they're spreading the doubt and, you know, that who knows how it came about. But it's just really weird that they do this, even though at the same time, we know this is just a pretty common human thing. Yeah, and I think there's a healthy amount of crit- like caution and criticism when you're living in a town that the Messiah is supposed to come from, I'm sure over the course of their history, there were probably lots of false messiahs that rose up and were proclaiming that they were the guy. And, you know, if you're only relying on your excitement that you're going to be the place where the Messiah comes and you instantly accept someone coming up and proclaiming that they're the guy, you're going to be taken advantage of you're going to be disappointed you're probably going to there's going to be a lot of hurt so right there is some aspect of this that it's good that they were critical of like oh hold on here let like let's get things straight i think the what you're going to get at is like why did they take offense at him because i think there's a tonal difference between being cautious and being offended at jesus right right yeah and and again this is just reinforcing this this uh, don't be too quick to judge. There's a lot going on here. It's easy to, you know, armchair, or what do they call that? Armchair quarterback, whatever. But anyway, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop for a second because we mentioned Jesus's brothers. I'm going to give you a real quick rundown on those, Samuel. Go for it. So it mentions James, which should be Jacob. I have no idea what's up with English translators calling him James. It doesn't make any sense at all, but whatever. Um, he, we may be familiar with the term James the Righteous. He was known for strict Torah observance. He was known for prayer. In fact, it's kind of funny. There's a story, pretty, pretty old, that he was nicknamed Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time in the temple on his knees in prayer that he had, you know, big, I don't know, calluses or whatever. Like, literally, they had a nickname for him because of his knees. It's crazy, wow. right? Um, there's a possibility that he was a Pharisee, like an official Pharisee. But this, oftentimes people don't quite put this little bit together. He became... This is, you know, after Jesus is gone. He became the head of the Jerusalem assembly, the the Jerusalem church, if we can call it that. He was the recognized authority over all believers everywhere. The same way that the Sanhedrin had authority in the nation of Israel over all the, the Jews, James was kind of like the main guy over all believers, the remnant, if you will. And this is, this is a crazy thought right here. He was the steward of the throne. That might give you a little Lord of the Rings throwback there. He was the steward of the throne of David in Messiah's absence. Because Messiah went away, James stood in his place, the steward of the throne. Kind of cool, right? Yeah. And and we'll see. This isn't going to come up, but he played a very prominent role in the book of Acts. He's the one that wrote the book of James. So all of these things, Jesus' brother James. However, he's not the James that you read about in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. 
He's not the James that you read about in Matthew 10, verse 3. So not every James is this James, but this James did a lot. He's a big (laughs) dude. Right? And so then, go ahead. No, I just said that's cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the other, another brother is Judas, Judah, Jude, whatever. He actually wrote the book of Jude. And, and other than that, he's actually not mentioned anywhere else. So that's kind of, kind of odd. Hmm. Uh, and then Joseph or Joseph and Simon, uh, they're just not mentioned anywhere else. Now, you may find those names somewhere in your New Testament, whatever. It's not them. So James is really the only one that makes some sort of real uh, presence, has a real presence there in the New Testament. Uh, Judas, he wrote the book of Jude, and that's about it. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. thought we didn't mention that real quick. And then the thing that you talked about, so, so remember their thoughts, it started out good, and then they show the progression where they get kind of bothered, and then the next thing you know, um, they take offense at him. And when they do, uh, it's really important that we understand this word. Uh, the, the day that we live in, this is 2021, right? February of 2021, we're making this recording, and it seems as though everyone gets offended at everyone and everything, everywhere, all the time. That's kind of what it seems like. They mm-hmm. take offense, but that's not what this is talking about. When we see this phrase, they took offense at him, we need to think of it more like they got tripped up. They stumbled. Um, You might even, like in the extreme case, you might even think of it as like they were caused to sin. So it's not offense the way we, you know, mostly think of it in a modern sense. And then notice that they weren't actually offended by any of Jesus' words or any of Jesus' actions. It was their own thoughts that got in the way. And again, you know, maybe, maybe some people were stirring it up and took others with them or whatever, but it was, if it happened in between their ears that they took offense and got messed up, somehow they were unwilling to accept that this familiar, ordinary man had all of a sudden become extraordinary. And interestingly, this this whole little scene, like when he's back at his hometown, it's a foreshadow of what happens to the entire nation of Israel. He is Messiah. He does show up, and he becomes a stumbling block and an offense. The nation does not accept him. Now, there were thousands who did, but the nation as a whole did not. And so, the kingdom that he was offering, the one that he said is at hand, the one that he was saying, I am the king, well, it did not come in its fullness when Jesus was here on the earth. So, through his life, his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. He inaugurates this kingdom. That's where we get this whole concept of the now and the not yet. But it is not in its, it's not here in its fullness. It's now something we look forward to. 
Yeah, I really like what you said about the difference between Jesus' words or actions versus their own thoughts that got in the way. I'm probably going to do this every episode because he's just such a big influence uh, in my faith and journey through all this stuff. But Marty Solomon has a really good teaching in Genesis 3 about the fall. Um, We can post a link to that episode down in the description for you to listen to. But specifically, after the fall happens and Adam and Eve are hiding from God, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8, no, verse 9, God is calling to Adam, saying, like, where are you? And, and the language indicates that, like, God has an order based on Genesis 1 and 2, a good system in place, like, almost like there was a place where Adam was supposed to be, where God intended it to, and, and Adam was not there, even though that, like, God knew because God knows all where Adam actually was. And then that whole dialogue, you know, how did you know that you were naked? Like, who told you that you were naked? And Marty says, like, in in some way, God is asking Adam, like, what other voices have you been listening to besides mine? And I think that it's a good callback to that. That's like God's voice, God's word. Like, that is truth. That is freedom. And most of the time, if not all the time, when we trip up, when we stumble, when we sin, it's not God's word that is causing the problem. It's our own thoughts or it's man's thoughts. It's the other voices that are blinding us or causing us to twist what the truth is that that gets in the way of that. So um, I just I just think that that's a really cool callback. And that's what's happening here, too, that, you know. Listening to other voices is really, really hard. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's the story. It's the whole story. But God's got a plan to fix it. Mm-hmm. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So, so they take offense and, and uh, Luke adds this little extra bit that the other guys don't have. This is Luke 4.23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What have, or sorry, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, this is another one of those where it doesn't matter if the English translation is good or bad or whatever, you just need more information for you to understand what's going on. This whole little proverb Physician, heal yourself. It seems straightforward, right? You can read that and have a sense of what it's trying to say, except that that's not what it's saying at all. The phrase, it, it was intended to communicate something more along the lines of prove your claims, care for your own family or community. In the same way, physician, heal yourself. Don't just do it out there, do it back here. And again, you know, context, family, community, whatever. But what's awesome is, is when you hear that phrase, physician, heal yourself, and then you, you understand it to mean that, then the sentence that follows, it just makes that much more sense. 
what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And I don't know if if we're to take it as Jesus, in a way, kind of explaining the proverb, or if it's Luke in the way he's telling the story, he's kind of bringing out the meaning of that proverb. But those two fit really well together, and it could be a little bit uh, tricky, might get you thinking wrong if you didn't know that that's what's behind that phrase. So there's that. And then <laughs> I just, I, this is also important for, I, I think, to see. Notice, they didn't actually say that. This is Jesus telling them where their thoughts are leading them. He's telling them that their thoughts are going to lead them to the place of demanding to see signs. That's just important to see. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, they're they're struggling enough. We don't have to put extra on them, I guess is all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the next little bit, uh, this is just kind of finishing up this part of the story. Um, Matthew thirteen fifty seven, Mark six four, Luke four twenty four, John four forty four. They are all basically saying the same thing. Uh, a, I'll read Matthews, but Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown." and in his own household. And the others say basically the same thing. One of them mentions relatives, that kind of stuff. So the thing is, and and we saw this, we just walked through this so that we could see it. And and we've read the other stories of like when he was in Jerusalem on the the festival or at the festival and uh, whatever. People had been very ready willing to entertain the idea that this Jesus is the promised one. But the greatest resistance he faces is now back in his hometown, around his own his own family, even. But here's my question. I'll ask you specifically, Samuel. Is it so crazy that they would expect some proof? I mean, wouldn't you? I would hope that they would ask for something yeah i mean it it's really unfair for us to look back and think well geez you know they should have accepted it i mean uh, out of everybody they should have accepted it and i mean there's an aspect of that that is true and then the exact opposite well okay that seems kind of true too they should be more skeptical maybe they want to be sure the thing is that this is, it's, it's pretty universal human behavior, not just in stuff like this. It's all kinds of areas, but here we're talking about, you know, spirituality, moral authority, things of, of God, the actual final redemption in the king. This is big stuff. And they knew him before he was quote unquote somebody. So, I don't know. We just got to just remember, don't be too judgmental. I think these guys are, they're just like us. And think just really quickly, think back to our episode about Jesus's temptations in the wilderness. We had talked about potentially in some way Jesus also struggled 
with this same area with what those tests that the Satan gave him, you know, specifically concerning if he was indeed the Messiah, like what what's the driving factor for why he would cast himself off of a high point of the temple if not to confirm to himself through his you know inner doubtings um questionings whether what has happened to him has transpired so i don't know there there should be some empathy going on right now that you know between jesus and the people that he he understands in some ways and now he's responding to, to that yeah yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. This is, it's so good to walk slowly through these things and think about what's really going on. Put yourself in other people's shoes. Imagine how it's all going. Because if you don't do that, there's a couple of things. You're, I think, missing out on the richness of the stories. And number two, uh, you're, what's the right word? You're completely nullifying the actual goal of the writers. The writers of all of these stories, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, maybe not so much when we're reading like letters from Paul or whoever, but Gospels and Acts, all of this writing, it's it's different than what we're used to in modern-day America. This is designed to make you dig in and think about things Try to see what's really going on here. See more than the just the words alone are telling you because there's so much more to see. And we've also mentioned this comes with an inherent danger. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, make up stupid stuff, but, you know, whatever. We're doing our best. So, yeah, yeah it's all good. Um, I, I gotta, let's do this one. It, like, know how it says that... Uh, Prophet's not without, uh, he is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Samuel, I'd like you to read John chapter 7, verse 5. All right. For not even his brothers believed in him. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh. Now, we know that they do later, especially James and Jude. We have some proof of that, right? But not even his brothers believed in him. You know, to believe, I don't know, like seeing a mighty work or something like that, to believe that this is something that's, you know, that God is working through someone or whatever. Okay, that's one thing. But taking that that next step, the extra step, the one where you're accepting this guy right here in front of me, right here, right now, he's the one, the long-awaited Messiah. Well, it's a hard thing. And and what, it's funny that you brought up the temptation, Samuel, because in John 7, if you kind of, we'll get there, um, when you're reading through that, you can kind of see that there's, there's, there are parts that are reminiscent of the temptations after the 40 days. So you might even see a little, little extra there. We're not going to do it now. We'll leave you to go after it. We'll get back to it someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, it's, it's good stuff. Now, I also want to mention... And and this, I guess what I'm doing is kind of uh, planting some seed. I'm I'm making the way for the conversation as it's going to continue later. But let's go back and address this question, Samuel. Why is Jesus doing signs and miracles? What's the point? 
uh, he's promoting this kingdom that he is saying is now being inaugurated through himself. Yeah. They're all displaying what the kingdom is going to look like. Yeah, exactly. So he's not trying to demonstrate power. I mean, obviously, power is involved, but that's not his point. He's not trying to show, hey, I am the powerful dude. Bow before me. Uh, it's, it's, I am the king, and I'm, I'm giving you signs to show you that what I say is true. So they demonstrate the kingdom, they demonstrate his kingship, and then here's a question, Samuel. If he was around a bunch of people and he really honestly knew being, you know, both God and man and having the Holy Spirit, and I mean, he had a lot of opportunities to know this. If he knows that they're not going to accept him, then why would you do signs and miracles? You probably wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. See, it's a a funny thing. Um, You do them because they demonstrate the kingdom, and yet at the same time, they can't be the only motivating motivating influence to show someone the kingdom. Yeah. It's an interesting picture. Interesting picture. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So now this, I don't think we've ever done this before, Samuel. We're going to leave everybody with a cliffhanger. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read what comes next. But because it's such a big and difficult topic, we're actually going to stop and put it in the next podcast. That's cool. So here it goes. Yeah. Well, I don't know if anybody will think it's cool other than us, but here we go. So uh, just real quick, uh, the Matthew one, it's in Matthew 13, verse 58. He says this very simply. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But then when we go to Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he says this. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And so, what we're going to talk about next time is, okay, what do you mean he could do no mighty work? What what are you even trying to say there, Mark? (laughs) If if those passages don't make you internally wrestle, I... I don't know what to do to try to stir that up in you. That is that is some tough stuff to to hear. Yeah. Do you feel cliff hung? <laughs> <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So seriously, we're going to stop right there. I'm going to let you just, you know, uh, simmer with that one in your brain, and then we'll come back next time and talk about it. And hopefully, I don't know that we can just, you know, explain it but hopefully we can bring some some helpful thoughts and and uh, help us to deal with a verse like that okie dokie thank you for listening to the okie dokie most podcast 
Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcasting platform so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.